Philippians chapter 4. We're getting close to the end of our study in Philippians. I don't know how long it's going to take us to finish because this last part of the chapter really contains some uh, powerful verses that we need to spend a little bit of time with. And I'm just amazed as we go through the book of Philippians uh, how many quotable verses of Scripture that we have here. I mean, I was just kind of looking through the list of these in uh, Philippians 1, 6, 121, 129, 2, 3, 2, 5, 2, 8 through 11, 2, 13, 3, 8 through 9, 3, 13 and 14, 3, 20 and 21, 4, 4, 4, 11, 4, 13, 4, 19 are all quotable verses that, uh, that, that lots of people know. And uh, it's almost like you have to memorize this entire book. Well, our text verse tonight is not one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, but in a few short words, it does tell us about the dramatic change that takes place in a person's heart when he becomes a Christian. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that speak of the inward change of believers. Uh, Probably two that are uh, most often referred to are 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is that one that talks about becoming a new creature in Jesus, a new creation in Christ. And Galatians chapter 5 talks about uh, the fruits of the Spirit, what kind of character that you have after that you become a Christian. And this verse, Philippians 4 verse number 5, also speaks of the change in a Christian. And because there is a different spirit in a Christian, a Christian will have a different spirit. Now, you kind of have to see that written out, if we have it up there on the screen, to, to get the, the meaning of that. Because there is a different spirit in a Christian, the Christian will have a different spirit. And you'll notice there that the first spirit is capitalized, because that refers to the Holy Spirit. And then the second one is in lowercase, because that's the activating principle that determines your character. Now, that's what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight, as we consider one verse of Scripture, Philippians 4 verse number 5. Now, I'll just have you stand right quickly. We'll read it, and then we'll get into our study. Philippians 4, verse number 5 says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for each one who's come tonight. Uh, We pray, Lord, you bless in the message, and Lord, we may we learn something about character of Christians and what kind of spirit that we really need to have uh, bless this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The operative word in verse number 5 is this word moderation. What does that word moderation mean? Well, it's actually been described in different ways. Uh, some translate the word as gentleness. Others say it means reasonableness. Forbearance is sometimes suggested. Uh, Contentment is another word that's used to describe it. In fact, there are many different interpretations of this word because it's not a word that carries over very easily into the English language. And so rather than think about one single word to express uh, what the King James calls moderation, you kind of have to think of a concept. And I've chosen as the title of the message tonight what I think is a good concept for the word moderation, and that is uh, that we should have a sweet spirit. I think it means we need to have a sweet spirit. And so you can really throw in all the words that I've just mentioned, reasonableness, reasonableness uh, forbearance, gentleness, contentment, uh, maybe you want to say easygoing. All of those words are considered in the concept of this King James word, moderation. 
Why does Paul bring up the concept at this particular time? Well, we have to go back to what we've considered to be the main point of this epistle. There are many good doctrines that are introduced in the book of Philippians. And uh, Philippians is really about the general tenor of a Christian's life. As I've mentioned before, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it uh, the life of joy and peace. And certainly, Philippians does teach the life of joy and peace. But we think about what brought us to this particular place, and why does Paul speak to the Philippian church about this? I mean, uh, why isn't this the theme that we read about in 1 Corinthians? Or why isn't it uh, in Romans or Galatians? Why why don't those books uh, talk about this? Well, particularly... uh, Philippians was written for a different purpose than those other books. 1 Corinthians uh, speaks about selfishness and immorality. Uh, Romans is a book of uh, just a compendium of Christian doctrine. Galatians was written to refute the error of uh, works for salvation, especially when there were Judaizers in the church that were insisting that Gentile converts be circumcised. But this book of Philippians is for something else. This is really about the relationship between Christians because there's always this potential danger for damaging personal conflicts among the members of the church. And so we had to go through those uh, beginning chapters of doctrine until we got to the central issue, which is in chapter 4, verse number 2. And if you remember, that's the conflict between two ladies that are in the church at Philippi. Now, all along the way, Paul lays down doctrine so that when the real problem is introduced, he already has a resolution for the conflict in place. And so we come to chapter, uh, in chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5 and all the following verses of the chapter. We have to consider these verses in light of that problem of conflict. A Christian has been given a new nature. He's a new creature in Christ. And because of that, that means I'm going to treat you in a different way. And you're going to treat me in a different way because we have a different spirit in us. Now the trick, if you want to put it this way, is the last three words that we find in that first sentence. Let your moderation be known to or unto all men. And so it means not just to those who treat you well, not just to those who are in your family, not even those who are just in your church family. No matter where you are, no matter who it is, you need to have a sweet spirit. And really, uh, this is a much harder thing to do than we think because this takes being yielded to the Spirit of God. Now, as I think about this theme in Philippians, I keep going back to the Sermon on the Mount and and what we're studying there. In a few weeks, we'll get to uh, some other verses there in chapter 5 where Jesus addresses this very issue, how we are to treat one another, about having a forbearing spirit. Well, this evening we have one sentence that I want to consider. Let your moderation be known unto all men. Now, I'll get to the second part of this. The Lord is at hand. That comes in part number two of the sermon two weeks uh, from now. And we'll discuss that. So we're going to discuss these two sentences of the verse separately. And then we'll tie them together and and show how that they're complementary. Now, I want to begin with this this evening. Considering this sweet spirit is that we are to cultivate a forbearing spirit. Let your moderation be known unto all men. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a 
a sermon that Brother Ekno gave to our men at our men's retreat last year. And he was speaking about a comedian that he'd heard on television. And I suppose that this person was an atheist, he was an agnostic or something of the kind. And he was asked why that he had never become a Christian. And the man responded this way. He said, because I have never seen a Christian who's like Christ. Now, Brother Ekno said, well, you know, we'll object to that and start making excuses like, well, he hasn't met all Christians, or the Christians that he has met, uh, he's judging everybody based upon those few. But the reality of it is, folks, that there are few Christians who really do act like Christ. Now, I'm not talking about acting like Christ in, in a perfect way, but I'm speaking about in the essential areas that we think of when we begin to talk about Christ. Do we really act like him? You know, when you talk to anybody about Jesus, before they ever get to things about the birth of Christ or you talk about the cross of Christ, people will always talk about Jesus in relation to his kindness and his compassion. They just talk about the way that he treated people. Now, they may have the wrong concept of his motives, and they really may not understand the demands that Jesus makes. They don't really listen to the commandments that Jesus gave and the, and the strict obedience that he's required, he requires. But they do know this. Jesus treated people well. And they look at that piece of his character, and they say that Christians really don't act like that. The truth of it is there are very few Christians who are good advertisements for Christianity. We're largely unattractive to people because they don't see in a relationship between what they know about Christ and the way that we act. There's just no correlation. I mentioned uh, some time ago about a bumper sticker that I uh, saw on a car here in Roanoke Park. And the, the bumper sticker said this, Please, Lord, save me from your followers. Now, no doubt that was a, a cynical attack on Christianity. But it, it, it can very well be the truth. I mean, when you think about this, how, how people see how Christians act and things that they do and the way that we treat people, and some of them would, be rather, would rather be saved from us than they would be to be saved from hell. You know, I think about uh, the attitude that I see in some preachers as they preach the Word of God. I mean, there are some who just defiantly say, we are those rock-ribbed fundamentalists. And they mean that we're going to stand for the truth of God's Word. We're going to stand for what we believe. No matter what the world says, we're going to stand firm. We're going to defend the faith, or what they call the faith. And that's well and good. I believe all of those things. I stand for the very same things. But the question is, isn't there a way that we can get the message of Christ out without being hateful? without being spiteful about it, without being angry about it? Isn't there a way that we can give the gospel to people, stand up for what we believe, without being demeaning to people? I don't want to be a mean-spirited preacher. I mean, I want to defend the faith. I want to wield the sword of the Spirit. But I want to be a sweet-spirited person as I do it. And so I, you know, I might cut your head off with the truth, but I'm going to smile while I do it at least. No, so I really do think that, that this is some of the backlash that we have against uh, fundamentalism in the country today. I mean, the way that the Word of God has been presented, or maybe not the Word of God even, but the way what we believe is presented, is in such a judgmental, mean-spirited way that people are just turned off about it. They don't want to be saved from hell. They want to be saved from us. Now, James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, we need to have personalities that are not so inflexible that people bounce off of us like a tennis ball uh, bounces off of a stone wall. 
But isn't that what we see in a lot of fundamental churches? If you don't look like me, if you don't talk like me, if you don't dress like me, if you don't act like me, then when you come to my church, I'm going to stare you right out of the door. And I've seen it a lot of times. People walk into the church and, and folks look at them with contempt. I mean, just because they're different. They're, they're so uncomfortable because of the way that people treat them that they walk out of the church before you ever get a chance to talk to them about Christ. I've seen people treat teenagers that way. And they look at them with disgust instead of dealing with them in a loving manner. Now, what we're too concerned about is cleaning up the outside before we ever get a chance to see what's on the inside. And the fact of the matter is, you can't clean up the outside and do it right unless you've reached that person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, don't go away saying that, well, Pastor Smith said we have a license for all the young people to dress in any kind of concoction that they want to wear and they can act any way they want to act. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying let's approach people with a forbearing spirit. Now, if you think about this, verse number 4 is much easier to do than verse number 5. Now, I gave you all of those reasons, three sermons, about why we should rejoice in the Lord. I mean, there are so many reasons I had to stop. I mean, I could have made 50 sermons on verse number 4. So we have all those reasons. Verse number 4, I think, is easy to do because we have so many reasons that we can rejoice in the Lord. It's easier than verse number 5 because verse number 4 is what I do for me. It's what I do to lift myself up. It's what I do to feel better. This is what builds me up. But verse number 5 is not so much about me, it's about you. It's how I practically outwork verse number 4. And so when I start talking about putting verse number 4 into action in the way that it helps you, then it becomes a much harder thing for me to do. Now what I want to show you tonight is four ways that we can cultivate a forbearing spirit. Four ways that we can do this. Number 1, letter A in your listening sheet, don't be easily provoked. Don't be easily provoked. Now some, I don't know about anybody in here, if if we had a much larger crowd I could probably say this, but some are firecrackers with short fuses. I mean they're just waiting to go off, carrying around a chip on their shoulder and and they're just waiting for you to say something to them. And if you do, heaven help you because they're going to unload on you. Paul says, let your moderation be known to all men. Let your sweetness, let your graciousness be known to others. Let your reasonableness be shown. Now that means that you're not easily offended. You might have been mistreated. Somebody might have acted wrongly towards you. They may have have had hostility towards you. But instead of being that brick wall... What we as Christians need to be is more like a trampoline. And I mean, we need to sag with the pressure. Take it. Jesus teaches us that. Now, if you go to the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, you can take a page right out of Paul's book there and paste it over verse number 5. I mean, you have all the answers right there in 1 Corinthians 13 about how to have a forbearing, easygoing spirit. He said this in verses 4 and 5 of that chapter, that great chapter about love. He says, charity suffereth long. That's love. Love suffers long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, and listen, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. He says, love suffers long. Now, did you know when Paul said that, that he was writing to a group of people who had been taught from their birth the exact opposite? 
That kind of attitude was completely unknown in the Greek and Roman world. They were people who believed in vengeance. You do something to me, then you better watch out because I'm going to get back at you. At my very first opportunity, I'm going to have vengeance on you. Now, when Paul says this, he says it with the intent that you might have every available opportunity. You might have it right in front of you. You may have the power to get revenge, but you don't. You hold back. You see, the idea of a Christian is someone who doesn't retaliate. We'll get into it in the Sermon on the Mount. Same thing, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, all of those things. What's that all about? It's about retaliation. And so it says that you can be wronged and wronged and wronged over and over and over again, but you don't give it back. You're not easily provoked. And that's what he says in in verse number 5 of 1 Corinthians 13. Now the principle here is that we are following the example of Christ. You've looked at him and you've seen what to do from his actions. You've seen what God has done. What's God done? Well, he's been wronged over and over and over again. I mean, how many of us can raise our hands and we say, we have sinned every single day? And how many of you can raise your hands and can say, I've had to go back to God over and over again over the very same sin? I ask him to forgive me over and over and over again because I keep falling into the very same sin again. You do it and I do it too. And what does God do? He always forgives. Now God is not easily provoked with his children. He's gracious. He bears with us for a long, long, long time. Here's what the psalmist says. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He also says in Psalm 6 verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Now, isn't that what we're trying to achieve? Isn't that Christ-likeness? But how many Christians are a good advertisement for Christianity when it comes to anger, when it comes to retaliation? How many of us are really slow to anger? Think about that the next time you want to fly off the handle and lash back at somebody. But you know what I've heard Christians say? That's just me. You know, that's just me. Uh, They slough it off. Oh, I was just in a bad mood. I do that sometimes. As if that's okay. Like that's an excuse to do it. Well, I was in a bad mood. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, but did you know you don't have a right to be in a bad mood? Why? Look at verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. How in the world are you going to be in a bad mood for more than a nanosecond? If you're always rejoicing in the Lord, always. You think about that. I mean, keep that on your mind. Rejoice in the Lord. You can't be in a bad mood or you're going to get out of it fast. So you can cultivate a forbearing spirit by controlling your anger. Don't be easily provoked. Now, the second thing that we need to do is to be eager to forgive. If you've been wrong, don't hold a grudge. Did you know the most miserable Christians are somebody who have something deep down inside. There are people who have something deep down inside that they've been holding on to, and they're just not going to let it go. Somebody have done, has done something, and they're just not going to forget it. They're not going to let it go. They are not going to forgive. Did you know that being an unforgiving person has far less effect on the person that you won't forgive than it does on you? It does. I mean, if you have an unforgiving spirit, it's a bitter spirit. It's a poisoning spirit. Hurts you far worse than it does the person you won't forgive. Now, I don't think that we really need to go too far with this because if you're a Christian and you miss the idea of forgiveness, 
then you don't know anything about Christianity. You miss Christianity altogether. Now, there's a whole lot that's wrapped up in a statement that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 4 about how we treat one another. He says in Ephesians 4, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, look at that one part. Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know what that is? That is a tenderizing statement for hard hearts. That's what it is. I mean, God has forgiven you. That's all the impetus that you ever need to forgive other people. And it wasn't as if God forgave all these little minor infractions that we're so concerned about. I mean, the very worst that somebody could do against us is nothing compared to what we've done against God. We have offended the holiness and the righteousness of God. Folks, it is our sin that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. If it wasn't for our sin, for our offenses against God, Christ never would have had to come into the world to die for us. And yet, what does God do? He graciously and mercifully forgave us in Christ. Now, that makes us look so puny when we think about all those little offenses that people commit against us and we absolutely will not forgive them. Now, for sure, a Christian cannot miss the concept of forgiveness. Our personal affronts are minuscule compared to what God has forgiven. Paul also says this in Colossians chapter 3, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. But I want to tell you something. It's not just about the willingness to forgive. It's also the eagerness to forgive. Jesus said, agree with thine adversary quickly. That's what God is willing to do. He's willing to to forgive quickly. God doesn't put us through rigorous steps of, of, of penance. He doesn't say, well, here's what you have to do. I've got a list of things that you need to do first, and then I'll forgive you. But isn't that exactly what we do? We say, well, I'll forgive you, but here's the things that you need to do. You've got to correct this, and you've got to fix that. You've got to do this, and this, and this, and this. And then maybe, just maybe, I will forgive you. That's not the way that God forgives. Now, one thing that we need to do is not to confuse fellowship with relationship. Now, I I talk about fellowship and relationship often. Uh, Fellowship can be disturbed by your sin, but the relationship never can be. And I'm going to apply it in a little bit different way. The fellowship that you have with a fellow Christian can be very upset. It can be all out of sorts by the continual haranguing that another person has against you. But your relationship is not going to change. And you know what it is? Both of you are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not going to change. When you get saved, you get saved forever. And folks, look around the room. These are the people you're going to spend eternity with. So you better start liking them now. I mean, that's the truth of the matter. And so be eager to forgive a person because fellowship is much easier to restore when you have forgiveness. So cultivate a forbearing spirit, a gracious spirit, a sweet spirit by being willing to forgive those who wrong you. Number three, what do we need to do? Be equitable in judgment. Equitable in judgment. Now let me show you the principle from Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 verse number 1. Brethren... If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, 
lest thou also be tempted. Now what I'm speaking of here is judging yourself as you do others. Now do you catch yourself sometimes looking with a jaundiced eye at what other people are doing? I mean, you see what they're doing and you don't like it and you consider all the sins that they have and you never think about what you're doing. You never think about what's deep down in your heart that nobody else can really see. Did you know Jesus talks about that too? I wonder where. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Be fair about your judgment. Now, here's what happens. When we closely examine ourselves, it will give us a forbearing spirit. When you look and see how you are compared to what they are, and be honest about it, then you've got to have a forbearing spirit. Now, there's an example of this in Luke chapter 7. And this is when uh, Jesus was asked to come to supper at the house of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. Now, turn over there to uh, Luke chapter 7. Let's read this together. Let me, let me give you a little background here. Now, this is the story about the woman that everybody knew she was a sinner. And she was at this supper where Jesus was invited. And everybody sat down to eat or they came into the house. And when Jesus came in, this woman began to wash his feet. She began to cry. And she washed his feet with her tears. And the Bible says she wiped them with her hair. Then she poured out this expensive ointment to anoint the feet of Jesus. Now here's the exchange that took place between Jesus and Simon. Start at verse number 39. Matthew, or Luke 7, verse number 39. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, now that's when he saw what the woman did when she came and she anointed Jesus and and wiped his feet with her hair. When he saw that, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will he love or will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water uh, for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now there's that proud, smug Pharisee. And he judged this woman to be a sinner. But he didn't know anything about her heart. He didn't know about her love for Jesus. Now it turns out that the Pharisee didn't have much love at all. Because he didn't offer Jesus even the courtesy when he was willing to admit he just might be a prophet. He didn't even offer him the courtesy of of having a bowl of water there to wash his dusty feet. Now Jesus had a way of getting right at the crux of every person's problem. I mean, if this man 
could judge others. He could judge others, but he couldn't judge himself. Now, if we put ourselves into the place of the woman, not in the place of the Pharisee, put yourself in the place of the woman, then you realize how much you have been true, truly been forgiven. You realize what a great sinner that you are, and you just, you're broken by that. You know, that's... <laughs> Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? Didn't he say that? I mean, didn't he talk about people being poor in spirit? And what did that mean? Being absolutely broken down because of their sin, sorrowing over their sin. That's what Jesus said. But too many of us are like the Pharisee. We will look at what everybody else is doing. We judge them on what they do, and we never give a second thought about the own, our own sins that are deep down in our heart that people can't see. And we just won't admit it, but we're willing to judge. Now, let me, let me give you one more before we finish tonight. In two weeks, we're going to come back. We're going to pick up the second sentence of this, of this verse. The fourth one is, don't elevate self. Cultivate a forbearing spirit by not elevating yourself. Now, it seems like, and, and, uh, and I say seems like, I mean, this is really an absolutely true statement and we find it all throughout the Scriptures and the teaching of Jesus and the Apostle Paul that the root of all of our problems, the root of our conflict, the root of being judgmental, the root of being unforgiving is the view that we have of self. There is a terrible theology out there that says that we must have higher self-esteem. We've got to think positively. We must value ourselves because if we don't, we'll never improve our relationship and value others if we don't value ourselves. Now that sounds pretty good. It sounds like, well, that's reasonable, isn't it? But it's the same old lie of the devil. And it counters everything that we've just discussed. And so you have the Schulers and you have the Osteens and those others that are saying, love yourself first, take care of yourself first, and then you'll be willing to help others. You know what Jesus and Paul say? They say when you're thinking about self-esteem, when you're thinking about who you are, when you're taking care of yourself first, you'll never love others properly. You know why? Because you'll never get beyond yourself. You'll never get past yourself. We just love ourselves too much. You know, Robert Schuller is the one who made that grand statement. Classic theology has erred in its insistence to be God-centered and not man-centered. Schuller's standard of orthodoxy is the same old satanic doctrine that's always been around. Now, you check out the bookstores, and you can find plenty of this stuff there. You find it in secular sources and religious sources. Doesn't matter. What is it? Psychiatry mixed up with theology. And what do you get? The same old stuff that Satan was preaching in the, in the Garden of Eden. So what happens? Well, we've got the idea that what's most important is personal development. I've, I've got to feel good about me. And whatever feels good to me is most important. And if that means I have to walk all over you, that's okay. Because to thine own self be true. Well, we see Paul's reputation of this a little bit more clearly when we get down to verse number 11. And there it says that he had learned to be content in whatever state that he was. And when we get to that, we're going to see that what he's talking about there he had rejected self and that's why he was content now if, if things worked out well for him that's okay if it doesn't work out well that's okay too because self is not the most important thing and we find it in two places especially in the book what's going on with Paul well the prison experiences and the personal hardships that he's going through but what does he say in chapter one he says in verse number 12 don't worry about me 
Don't worry. Everything that's happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. You know what that statement says? It's not about me. It's about other people reaching them with the gospel of Christ. It doesn't matter what happens to me. Now, he brought those same sentiments out again in that verse that we quote so many times from chapter 2, verse number 3. He says, esteem others better than you. What's the thought? Don't promote yourself. Don't keep trying to put yourself up front. Keep beating back yourself because when you do, you've only got one thing you can do. The only way that you can be fulfilled when you beat back self is to elevate others. Is to treat others better. And you get your fulfillment in what you do for others. Promote others. And when you do, you know what will happen? People are going to start talking about your sweet spirit. It's the cultivation of a sweet spirit. And so when anything is thrown at you, what do you do? You hang in there. You don't strike back. Why? Because it was never about you anyway. And how, how much does it take to get that across? It's not about you anyway. It's about being like Christ. It's about advertising the life of Christ. And advertising the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's convincing people to take a look at Christianity. Because there really are some people who act like Christ. Now I'd venture to say that that comedian that uh, Brother Ekno was talking about that He never considered how many atheist hospitals are built. He never thought about how many humanitarian efforts are led by communistic, atheistic countries. Where do we get hospitals? Where do we get universities? Where do we get schools? Did you know it all started out with Christians? That's where it all started. Why? Because there was a time when there were people who acted like Christ. Now what we've got to do is show people that those times have not passed us by. There are still some people who act like Christ. And friends, I'm telling you, there is a way that we can have a sweet spirit. Practice the things that I said here, and people will be talking about your sweet spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and what we learn here. And what we want to do most of all is to glorify your name, to lift you up. May we put ourselves behind, behind, behind all of the time. And may we have that gentle, forbearing spirit, the sweetness that we need that was really the character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless our people tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.